Ladies and gentlemen, it's now time for the most popular and least listened to podcast in the world, the Sixth Sense Media Podcast, with your host, Mike Phelan. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I watched a watch list earlier today, and man, I I am so depressed. <laughs> uh, there, there <laughs> it's was, a pretty intense one. Yeah, I, I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure no one's going to come out the winner in this, and man, at the, at the end, I was like, Jesus. Yeah. This put me through the ringer for emotions. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not an easy one to watch, but but we hope that it's uh, worth the experience by the end of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, and, uh, for people unfamiliar with, with the drug trade in the Philippines, it's, it's really an eye-opener, uh, just from the way people have to live and what they have to deal with and the, those moral sacrifices they have to make to just live is intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, and, and I, there obviously have been documentaries on, on the extrajudicial <laughs> killings and a lot of journalism and news stories on it. But, you know, I heard this quote once, uh, that, that nonfiction or, uh, nonfiction tells you what happens and fiction tells you what it feels like. And that really stuck with me as like a different window into telling stories, um, where you might get the, facts and figures from you know a google search or a new york times article but you know this story starts the next day like how do you move forward with with a hole in your family that where the where the father used to be and how do you pick up the pieces and move on and and that's sort of the power of cinema that it can you know for 90 minutes transport you to this other side of the world and put you in someone else's shoes and just be a fly on the wall for that experience to, you know, at the bottom of, uh, of the society looking up at the authoritarian regime, like what that, what that feels like. Well, what was the writing process like for this? I can't imagine it was easy. No, it was, uh, it was really hands-on. Like, I guess, you know, the original inspiration, uh, came from this photograph that I saw that I couldn't shake from my, my memory that um, it was of a woman holding her husband after he'd been slain and, you know, kind of resembled the mother Mary. And it was the photograph that went viral around the world that kind of put this, these drug wars on, on the map, on the global stage. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I, and I ended up calling the reporter who had uh, been a fixer for that article and, asked her, you know, what was the story behind it. And, and she just proceeded to tell me the most heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story um, that I wasn't seeing reported in the news. And, and at the end of the conversation, she said, why don't you come to Manila and see for yourself what's happening? And so I, you know, got onto a plane and, and embedded with these journalists for three weeks just as research um, and rode along the crime scenes, um, saw more dead bodies in that time than I'd ever seen in my life previous and, you know, interviewed victims, families and talked to ex-police officers. And I kind of knew coming in as a outsider, uh, as an American, you know, that I would be under a microscope trying, you know, to tell this story and tell it truthfully. Um, and so it really, uh, authenticity became our guiding principle that this had to feel real and truthful Quiet, please. Um, to the experience because if it didn't it would be downright disrespectful to uh, everyone who's suffering through this tragedy and so you know people talk about filmmaking as telling the story I think real filmmaking is deeply listening to to stories around us and 
uh, authentically reproducing them. And so that that was sort of the uh, research phase was just like <clears throat> listening to all of these stories from the streets. And a lot of those anecdotes made it into the film, even though we kind of frame the story around one true incident of a woman, you know, turned vigilante. Uh, a lot of the details were filled in from from stories that, that people told us in our research. When it came to casting, how how did you go about that? How did you know who you would have, who would be the right person? As you said, you were going to be under a microscope, so you had to have someone that was very believable. So how did that uh, casting process go? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's like they say, like 90% of good directing is good casting and, and just getting like the people that, you know, can believably tell your story. Um, you know, we knew the role of Maria was going to be the biggest challenge because, you know, not to give any spoilers, but she goes on to do some pretty, pretty horrific things. And, and if we didn't understand, not necessarily sympathize, but just understand why she was doing what she was doing, the whole film would fall apart. And so, you know, in looking for this, this role, it was, it was uh, pretty early on, like, you know, my producers brought to my attention, this, this actress, Alessandra De Rossi, um, who's just phenomenal, like uh, a, a force of nature, and, you know, she's a really well-respected actress out there. She's known for her kind of like both art house films and commercial cinema, but she's not afraid to, you know, um, kind of go to some, some darker places that a lot of like maybe celebrities <clears throat> might not. And so she, she carried the film on her back. Like I, you know, at its most basic, the story is about a, a mother going to great lengths to protect her children. And that's a very primal instinct that I think is what also makes the story connect with, with audiences. It's, it's, it's a very basic kind of primal story. Um, and then the rest of the roles, like, you know, Ventura, the, the main cop, uh, is played by Jake Macapagal, who was already kind of broke out internationally with this film Metro Manila. Um, he was the lead in Matt that won Sundance, I guess, back in 2013. And I'd seen that film and was just totally uh, taken with his performance. And he plays a very different role here, but this kind of quiet, you know, sinister quality that that uh, registers very well for cinema, where it's you know so muted that like you can't really tell where he's coming from until he's all over you. Um, but I got to say, like the it was really the the children actors that stole the scene in a lot of cases. Like the boy who plays Mark, uh, Maria's son. You know, it's always kind of a risk when you when you work with like child children actors because you don't know like uh, where they're coming from or if they're able to process and everything at a mature level. And he just you know reaches in and rips your heart out by the end. And and you know although the story is kind of told from Maria's point of view, it slowly shifts into Mark's point of view, or her son's point of view by the end. And to be able to carry that, that level of intensity, especially opposite some of the other actors, um, it was remarkable to see. What's your um, directing? But I, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, on the casting thing, the other the other interesting thing about this is that although these five main actors were kind of, you know, professional actors, like, almost all of the secondary actors and extras are, are people from these neighborhoods. Um, and so when you see someone who looks like you know, they used to be addicted to meth, like it's because they were. And, you know, you can't kind of 
fake that casting. And so, you know, again, to make it feel as realistic as possible, when we would go into a neighborhood to, to film, we would quickly try and grab people off the street and, and see if they would want to be featured in the film just to give it that kind of visceral quality. From the standpoint as a director, what what is your method of going about directing people in this kind of scenario? Because you have to get gritty and real with with trained actors, but then, like you said, you've got you've got extras or people that aren't uh, that haven't been acting that long and uh, coming in. And you're trying to get the same level of performance out of them. How do you go about doing that as part of your job? Yeah, and and added to that, like the film was in Tagalog, and and I don't speak Tagalog, so it was like this other layer of like communication, um, you know, nuance. But I, uh, you know, I think that I guess when I, you know, it really does come down to like authenticity and realism. Like if it ever, you know, felt like insincere, both performance wise or story wise. I mean, there's this great saying that the camera doesn't lie. Right. Which which, you know, usually refers to someone's performance and, you know, in a close up, you can't really like play to the back row and, you know, the audience will pick up these inauthenticities. I actually think that applies to story, too, where, where the story doesn't lie. So even if you're not from this culture, like you'll feel something that doesn't like register as truthful. And so I constantly had people around uh, me to, to help guide the like, you know, realism aspect. So. You know, with the actors, like, if they tell me something doesn't feel real, I, I listen to them and I adjust. I don't try and go against the grain or, or, or force them into what I pictured. If, like, you know, uh, like, so I, I constantly had this journalist by my side saying, like, is this how this scene would play out? This, this you know, people, these cops storming into this apartment, where would they be? Like, what's, what does the, you know, furniture look like? And, and so... I guess performance-wise, um, you know, luckily I, the, the actors were willing to kind of, you know, dig deep and, and do multiple takes. And so we would we would just push it in, in the direction it was already going. And if something wasn't working, we would throw out some lines or re-block the scene. Um, I think that's the biggest thing as a director is like knowing when to hold your ground and be firm on, on your vision and when more importantly to give way and, and be fluid and allow for changes to happen. Because I think a lot of time, you know, we're in our own way and, and learning how to get out, of our, get out of our own way is, is what, you know, achieves the best result because it is a collaboration in the end. Oops, did I lose you? I got you. Uh, you cut out for just like about three seconds there. Oh, okay. Did you miss anything? I, I the, the last part of what I was saying. Yeah, I, I got it. And then there was just like that noticeable, just like, like little pop <laughs> when things go right. Oh. <laughs> so I got my it. I, oh. Okay. Um, shooting on location like this, did it, uh, did it give you any trouble, or did things go smoothly? <laughs> It was a very intense shoot for sure. Like I, you know, we were in the in the slums of Manila uh, in the peak of summer, so it was hot. It was sticky. There were monsoons, typhoons. Um, you know, we were really adamant about shooting on location. Like early on, my producers, you know, uh, tried to convince me to shoot on a on a set um, just because it might not be safe to shoot in these in these streets. 
um, you know, the murders were happening at night and we were oftentimes filming in the, during the day, um, in the same, in the same location. And so it definitely, uh, you know, we, we opted to go with, with real locations because again, just for the realism, like there's no way you could fake it if you would try and reconstruct this in a set. And so, um, by doing that, you know, it was a much harder to control. We would have, you know, this whole department called crowd control that would, you know, you show up with, a, you know, a, a movie star into these locations and within 20 minutes, there'd be a thousand people like standing on the side trying to get a peek at what's going on. And so, you know, that was helpful for for the casting, like, you know, grabbing, you know, people that, that wanted to be in it. But, um, you know, we shot like that scene with her shack near the train tracks. Like there was a there was a moment when a train came and, and hit our set and took half of it with it. Uh, you know, we got rained out of a location. We got um, trapped in the location during a monsoon and flooded, you know, where it was coming up to our <clears throat> knees with water. I was briefly hospitalized at one point for exhaustion. Um, it was it was intense. It was not easy for, for anyone. We pushed everyone to the max, but um, luckily everyone believed in the, you know, the in what we were doing and, and telling the story. So people went, <laughs> went through great sacrifice to to make the movie would you put yourself through this kind of situation again if you knew the outcome was going to be as good as watchlist turned out to be definitely yeah it's like a you know pain is temporary film is forever i guess was that famous like line from <laughs> was it uh robert zemeckis but um it's it's true like i think that uh you know you never know the outcome and so like I guess the harder thing to come to terms with in filmmaking is are you are you enjoying the experience of, of trying to make the movie and, and all the days of despair and doubt and you know like not getting funding and like is that process are, are you you know is that are you able to find uh, stimulation in that because the end result of the film is is sometimes harder to control. Like, you know, I worked on a, a film before this that was a very traumatic experience and people kind of told me, oh, it's about the end product, just like focus on that. And I had this realization that it's not, like our lives are every day in between. So I think it's worth, uh, I guess, I'll put it this way. If everyone on the same team is trying to make the same movie, it's worth any pain that we all go through collectively. If if the mentality is it's us versus them, that can be very damaging, and it doesn't matter to me if the movie's good or not. It's it's destroyed people in its wake, and so yeah, I think the process is important. Uh, on that on that same topic, what's your what's your next project? Uh, I just finished my first documentary. Uh, it's called The Reunited States. Extremely rewarding just to follow, you know, these four sets of characters over the past two years that are really actively trying to work our cross of differences and provide solutions for the rest of us to do the same. Um, that's just now hitting the festival circuit and you know, couldn't be more timely with, with the pandemic and, you know, the George Floyd protests and the election year. Um, so that one's finishing up. And then I have one. So my next narrative film is uh, 
about a woman who survives a mass shooting and now goes online to target extremists and stop them before they commit violence in the real world. So it's kind of at the intersection of uh, mass shootings and online extremism and how loneliness uh, sometimes boils over into violence uh, in the real world. And it's another uh, light comedy, let's say that. Uh, my last question, which is the most important, is where and when will people be able to see Watchlist? So Watchlist releases in virtual cinemas on Friday. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's, a, it's in five cities across the country. And so um, I guess a quick Google search would show where those virtual cinemas are. And then September 1st, it releases uh, on VOD and on demand everywhere. So September 1st is kind of the the time in which it will be available digitally everywhere. All right, Ben, thank you very much. Uh, it was, it was a great film. It was, it was not what I was Thanks, expecting. Uh, when I saw the trailer, <laughs> I, I was thinking it was going to be something else. And then once it got, did you rolling, think it'd be more like an action movie? A little bit or more like a, uh, to be honest, uh, kind of like a paint by numbers crime drama, which Right. When it went in a completely different direction, I was I was thrilled because I watch screeners nearly every day. So, being in this business so long, you know what you know what tropes to expect with certain movies, and for to right. have something that just kind of went, nope, I'm gonna go this way, and I'm gonna drag you along no matter how much you don't want to do it. <laughs> and by the end, I was like, man, I am. I am hurting, but I am glad that I saw this. I'm glad that it did this to me because I wasn't bored. And I just kept right. wanting to to watch no matter how badly I knew how things were going to end up. I was like, I can't, I can't stop watching it. Wow. That means so much, man. I mean, I really, you know, the fact that you like see so many movies and, and found yourself like kind of surprised at the twists and turns, like ultimately that's like, every movie is, should be some form of a mystery. And as soon as you figure out what's going on, like we lose interest. So the fact that it, you know, kept, uh, that it turned in a different direction, um, and, and that it was, you know, enjoyable, although painful, uh, is very meaningful to me. Um, I should tell you, we had a different ending previous to this one that you saw that was even <clears throat> more bleak. That was like too much for audiences. The, the original ending that we shot, uh, was, after the boy, after her son gets dragged out of that room, um, it and and she's you know left there to die. Like it cut to a news report where you saw that he had been killed and dumped on the side of the road, which was taken from a true news report of a teenager that kind of you know turned the tides in the protest against these EJKs. But when we when we tested it or showed it to people, it was just too much. It was like even though it was based in truth and reality, like you got to give a glimmer of hope if you put people through hell. And so we went back and reshot this ending. We actually got into Seattle uh, for our world premiere. And then in the time from when we got in to when we premiered it, I quickly went back to the Philippines, shot this new ending, cut it in and screened it like a week later. And, um, and so <laughs> I don't, I, it was more intense but i you know this one's still very emotional and ends on a very like bittersweet note you know where he gets away but you kind of realize he's an orphan now you know yeah i don't know how 
after seeing the film and now I know how it ends, I don't know if I if I went back and watched it and saw that ending instead, I don't know how the impact would have been. But if you had kept it in there and it had been my initial viewing, I I don't think it would have been much more impactful because it would have it would have felt natural to the prog- progression of the story. It, in fact, that's what I was expecting towards the ending anyway. Uh, when mm. they basically when uh, when they said give him the I think it was the line was uh, give him a gun and tell him to run. I think was the line, mm. and yes. I was expecting that they were going to make it look like he was attacking them and they were going to kill him anyway. That's what I was expecting. Right. So I don't see how anyone could have thought it could have been any more bleak because that's the buildup was just tragedy all around. There was no happy ending coming. Yeah. So, yeah, but it, no. it depends. People that go into those movies and and give you their opinions, they might not be their their emotional investment might be totally different than someone that's that watches movies as their job. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I but I think that like the you know mm, bleak nature of it, like the I guess the only difference that this new ending has is that you know twofold that you know that that the son doesn't you know pay for the sins of his mother but also that the cop like has a line that he won't cross to that maybe because this boy is still an adolescent and not quite a man that like you know there's some degree of like you can fix this and get out of this and and so there's you know even though it's pretty bleak and those those images of him running like you know crying out in the night is, is pretty heartbreaking like there is a sense that like you know maybe he can escape this or or not and that and that comes down to like the worldview of the viewer is like do you think he's you know got a chance and or do you think he's destined to go down a uh you know a dark path and i don't know like we always joke that maybe there's a, a sequel 10 years later with with mark um but yeah i'm curious what did you think after watching it like what was your feeling I, it's, it's hard to say because I watch a lot of documentaries about people that are stuck in a cycle that they just can't get out of. No matter how well-intentioned they are, they just get sucked back into whatever world they're surrounded by. And I, I see him not getting out of it. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it would take the death of a, a, a another sibling or an, another parental figure to snap him out of it but i i would see him just becoming another sadly another statistic in that whole scene unfortunately um but i i would like to see the exploration of how he transitions into adulthood based on what's happened to him i'd i'd love to see mm. that explored but yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I, I just don't know how where else you could go with the story because unless there's a drastic change in the in the setting you, you know people coming in from the last movie will just gonna see like they're just gonna predict tragedy all the way through and if you deliver on the tragedy huh. i don't know what the payoff would be for the viewer for an invested uh for an invested uh, invested audience member yeah i i and and plus this kind of time capsule of what's happening right now is is very unique to the film i you know i i'm curious also like obviously the film is releasing during this very somber period in our history of the <laughs> pandemic and i think it's it's probably hitting people even more forcefully because we're all so vulnerable
vulnerable and trying to hold on to any glimmers of hope as they slip through our fingers. And so, I mean, this film was never like, you know, intended to be like sugarcoated in any way, but I, um, I wonder if it's like even hitting people harder now because of just where we are in the world, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but... I agree. It's, I, I can see, um, I can see movies that, that I watch. I take them in differently based on the, the surrounding things. And like, if I sit down with my wife and we watch the same movie, she'll, from her life experiences and com- impacted on top or compounded with everything that's going on now, she comes, comes at a totally different angle than I do. So it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, if making a more upbeat movie, <laughs> if you were to make a sequel to this, how that would, how that would impact people. I mean, I'm, I'm seeking out actively in my personal life, more upbeat things, even though I'm, I have a background in the horror genre, so that's that's my go-to for everything. But I see myself just putting that to the side, and being like, "Let me look for something that's a little bit more lighthearted." But I mean, in a year, if if the whole social situation changes, uh, we could be right back to where we were, and people could be super accepting of really grim stuff again. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's you know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk. Like I I um. I sort of realized with the the last film that I did that, you know, you can't really control where a movie goes and how it, you know, like does commercially or how many people see it and stuff. But what you do have some control over is how deeply it impacts people. And so for me, I, I guess like I kind of, you know, decided like I, you know, I'm not trying to make something purposefully that's intended to reach the most people but I do want the people that see it to be deeply moved by it and impacted by it. And, and so it's weird. It's like, you know, you spend two years of your life on something that's like 90 minutes. That's it all for all intents and purposes, like a really messed up trade-off of, of time. <laughs> and so I think like, you know, having something that, you know, can hit people deeply as opposed to widely. Um, I don't know. I guess that's something I'm more drawn to now because, yeah, there's uh, there's no rhyme or reason to this business besides that, you know. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, my I watched Apocalypse Now with my wife for the first time. It was the first time seeing it, the original cut of the uh, film, and just watching mm. what her takeaway was it at the end because I I knew how that cut of the film ended, and once mm-hmm. it got to that point, I was just like I was like okay, I'm ready to get up and do whatever. But she sat there and was like, that's it. It's like. Yeah, that's 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 the ending of the film. Like, well, how does how does he get out of there? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I the build up was Colonel Kurtz, and that was the beginning and the end of the end of that film. You know, it's, the mission was achieved. So whatever happens after that doesn't matter. But yeah, she was invested in a totally different way than I was. Wow. Yeah, I could see that. It's uh, it's not for the you know, average like for the for the moviegoer that wants things wound up in a nice bow. And you know, this was sort of like I guess what you're talking about is the, it's the social contract between you know like storyteller and audience where it's unspoken, but it, it basically says you know, I'm you're gonna enter and where you are when you watch this film, 
you know, we're going to take you on a ride and shake you up and make you laugh and make you cry, but then we're going to deposit you safely back to where you started from so that you can go about your life. And when a film breaks that contract, it's very disturbing for, for a lot of the audience. And um, that was something that we found we were running up against with our our film and why we changed the ending was, and, and my producers were like, they didn't want to change it. They were like, it's fine. No one said anything about this. Just keep it the way it is. And I was like, this isn't what I want people to feel walking away from this. Like, you know, I, and, and then after we shot it, like, thankfully it worked and it made a lot of sense. But yeah, that's when you break that social contract, it's very disruptive for people. You've been listening to the Sixth Sense Media Podcast. You can find more of our celebrity interviews and roundtable discussions on iTunes, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Be sure to check out our movie, TV, and video game coverage at SixthSense.com and FanBolt.com.